This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Thank you for singing, everyone. Uh, you may now be seated. We'll be moving into a time of scripture reading, and we are reading from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 9, verse 18 to 27. So I'll give us a moment to grab our Bibles, or if not, we can follow the passage on the screen. So Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save the life will lose it, but whoever loses the life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit the very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And this is God's word. So I'll now pass time over to Pastor Andrew as he does the sermon for today. Okay, let's bow our heads and go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we truly want to thank you so much that we are able to gather around your word. And your word is such a source of encouragement and instruction to us. We do pray today, as we do whenever we open your word, that your Holy Spirit will be acting and uh, truly uh, impacting our hearts and our minds and uh, guiding us so that we may always be your children. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I remember my first experience going to a car showroom. It was a wonderful experience. You know, you go to the car showroom and uh, the car salesman will get you to sit in the car. They'll sit beside you in the passenger seat and they'll close the door. They'll turn on the stereo system and they'll say, oh no, look, can you see how good the, you know, the surround speakers are and you know, feel the seats and how nice the leather seats are and the air conditioning is so wonderful. And uh, you know, the, all these cool gadgets, oh, you know, you've got this Bluetooth and everything else. Uh, but the, the big part actually comes later on, right? Because when you go for the test drive, they always say, you know, you go for the test drive? And I say, okay, well, let's go for the test drive. And you know, you go for the test drive and then they'll say, oh, look, you know, can you feel how powerful the engine is? You know, can you feel how responsive the car is and how comfortable the ride is? But, you know, I noticed that after all the time that you go to the car showroom, uh, they seem to spend uh, no time on what is really important, uh, which is how much this car is going to cost you, right? Uh, they'll never tell you the cost of the COE, 
you know, how much it costs all the car servicing, uh, the upkeep, uh, the monthly payments, the, uh, the car insurance, the road tax, and uh, all these things, they never really talk about it. They'll just tell you about all the great benefits of the car. Now, the sad reality is that uh, today, actually, there are many churches which are like uh, car showrooms. I like to compare them to car showrooms. And many pastors who are a bit like car salesmen. So a few years ago, someone actually gave me a CD. Uh, okay, this must be quite a while ago, right? Because you don't really listen to CDs anymore. But someone actually gave me a CD of uh, a sermon from a pastor in a mega church. And so when you listen to the CD, you enter into the car showroom, I mean the church, and you listen to the pastor who's actually the car salesman. And in the sermon, uh, the, the pastor, the car salesman, tells you, how you know, great it is to become a Christian, all the benefits that you get. And uh, in the sermon, the pastor actually tells you uh, that, uh, that Jesus Christ and God is so, so desperate for you to come into his kingdom that there is no cost, there is no commitment, there is no charge, there is no change required of you at all. And you can actually hear the people in the background clapping and saying, Amen and Hallelujah. And so, he's basically saying that to become a Christian and to follow Jesus, to be a disciple and to come after Jesus is a costless uh, endeavor. It's a costless discipleship. And that's why today's passage, I think, is so, so very important. Because that's not the reality of following Jesus. That's not the reality of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to listen really carefully today. Now, today is a really, really important passage as we've been going through the book of Luke. It begins by saying in verse 18, Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Now this my friends, is a pivotal passage in the book of Luke. It is what many people say is like the hinge of the book of Luke. First thing we really have to notice here is that uh, uh, if you look at your subtitles of your Bible, for those of you who are looking at home uh, in your Bibles, your physical Bibles, or those of you who are looking at your uh, electronic Bibles, you may find a subtitle in your Bible which says, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, or something along that line. Right? Peter confesses Jesus. But really, when you look at the, the passage itself, it's, it's more than that. It's more than just Peter who recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. You see, if you look at the passage, all the, 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 the references uh, are all plural. Jesus asked them, the disciples. They replied, the disciples replied. And when Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Uh, this is not singular, this is a plural, right? So he's, he's speaking to the disciples. So when Peter answers the Christ of God, Peter's actually answering not for himself, but as a representative of the disciples, as the leader of the disciples. So the first thing we notice here is that it's not just Peter who has answered that Jesus is the Christ of God, but it's the disciples together as a group who recognize that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that is why this passage is so, so important. Because finally, finally, we see that a group of people, the disciples, are able to penetrate and to see the reality of Jesus as the Christ of God. 
Now, why is this so? Because this section, chapter 9, verse 18 and 20, functions in the book of Luke like a bit like a hinge of a door. You know, you came through the door, there's a hinge. Uh, it's like a spine of a book. It's like this inflection point where uh, now that the disciples recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the book of Luke, the narrative of Luke then takes a different direction. Okay? So, let me show you what I mean. Now, as the readers in the book of Luke, we have been privileged. Okay? We have a privileged insight into the person of Jesus Christ. So in Luke chapter 2, as we have done in the responsive reading, we see that the angels announce that Jesus is Christ the Lord. As the reader, we have the, we have the insight of this angelic announcement. Also, in Luke chapter 2, we also have the insight of the Holy Spirit speaking to Simeon. Okay, remember Simeon, the guy who was righteous and devout, waiting in the temple? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. And then, who comes next? Jesus Christ. Now, therefore, as the reader, we're in a sense given this privileged insight that Jesus is the Christ. Now, as we read then, the rest of the passage, we see that the people in the narrative, they don't have the benefit of this angelic announcement. They don't have the benefit of the Holy Spirit speaking to them. So as we've been going through the book of Luke so far, we see the people within the narrative asking the questions of who is this man? Who is Jesus? You know, who is this person? So remember, we've been seeing over the last few weeks, we saw last week, King Herod was asking, who is this Jesus? You know, who is he? The crowd's asking, who is this Jesus? Uh, John the Baptist is asking, are you the one? The Pharisees are asking, who is this? And even the disciples at the miracle of the storm are asking, who is this? So, within the narrative, we are able to see that Jesus is the Christ. But the people who are traveling along with Jesus, they're witnessing Jesus' miracles, they're hearing the preaching of Jesus, they are puzzled, they are perplexed. They're wondering, who is this person? But as we go along as well, we see that various people come to different conclusions of who Jesus is. But they are the wrong conclusions, right? So the crowds thought that Jesus perhaps were a good, a great prophet like Jeremiah, Isaiah. Uh, we saw the people in Jairus' house regard Jesus as a teacher. Again, last week, Herod answered that the crowds thought that maybe Jesus was John raised to life or Elijah. And so within the narrative, we see that people are getting this question wrong. Who is Jesus? They're coming to the wrong answers, right? They're getting the wrong answers. And that's why Luke chapter 9 is so important. Because finally in Luke chapter 9 verse 20, the disciples, not just Peter, come to the correct understanding that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is wonderful, right? This is really wonderful because his identity has been penetrated. They actually understand who Jesus is. He is the Christ. But just because they understand the identity doesn't mean that they really understand who Jesus is. You sort of think that, you know, after waiting nine chapters to find out who Jesus is, that Jesus would then say, okay, now that you know that I'm the Christ, 
You should go out into the world and proclaim and preach and tell the whole world, I'm Jesus Christ. Right? I'm the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited King. But in verse 21, we read, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Now this is a shocker, right? Because we have been waiting nine chapters for people to recognize who Jesus is. Finally, when the disciples recognize that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus strictly warns them not to tell this to anyone. Now why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus tell them strictly not to tell them what is the reality of his identity? I think as we read the passage, it's probably because their understanding of Christ or Messiah, this King, is one associated with uh, glory and triumph and exaltation. Uh, the Christ that the disciples expect is the Christ of Psalm chapter 2, right? Uh, the prophecy where the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, would be this king who would rule the nations, he would be triumphant, and he would be glorious. But this is completely opposite to the Christ of Jesus. Right? In verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The Christ of Jesus, the Christ of Jesus' understanding is characterized by suffering, rejection and death and finally, resurrection. This is completely opposite to the Christ of the, of the disciples' thinking which is one of glory triumph and power. So I think what's happened here as we look at Luke chapter 9 verse 20 is that the disciples, they understand the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? But the problem is, is that they have got the wrong expectation of the mission of the Christ, of the, the life of this Christ, of the purpose of Christ as he lives and he walks among them. And so the focus, therefore, from chapter 9 onwards, is going to be on the mission statement of Jesus. What does he come to do? What is his purpose on earth? How does he understand Christ? And so, if we look at the narrative, it's a bit like this, right? So Luke chapter 1 and 2, we know who Jesus is. From Luke chapter 3 to 9, people are struggling with this question, who is this man? But then after we reach Luke chapter 9, verse 20, it's a bit like an inflection point or a hinge or the spine of a book where Jesus then begins to teach what the Christ has come to do. He fills out this idea of what does it mean to be the Christ. Now, for Jesus, this Christ is characterized by suffering and rejection and death in his earthly life. Now, if we look a bit more about the what he says, right? He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Not some things or a few things, 
but many things. So the characteristic of Christ as understood by Jesus in his earthly life is going to be one which is characterized by suffering, extensive suffering, not just a little bit of suffering, but a lot of suffering. And he's going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He didn't say some of the chief priests or a chief priest or you know, a few of them. But when he uses a definite article, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, he's saying as a group, right, united as a group, the religious hierarchy, the religious leaders of Israel will reject him as Christ. And this rejection and this suffering will be so intense that finally it will result in him being killed. But on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. Now, if verse 18 to 22 is all focused on Jesus and his mission, then what happens after this is he begins to teach the disciples what does it mean to follow a suffering Christ? What does it mean to follow a rejected Christ? What does it mean to follow a Christ that will die? Well, he then addresses the disciples. He said to them all, not just Peter, right? He said to them all, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here we see three commands, three strong imperative instructions. These things must be followed if you want to come after Jesus. The first imperative command instruction is you must deny yourself if you want to come after Jesus. You must deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, uh, this week actually is part of Lent. Okay, so you all, have you all heard of Lent before? So Lent is like 40 days before uh, Easter, right? So it's celebrated by traditional Christians, traditional churches, and my sister is a Catholic. So they celebrate Lent in her house. So she told me once when she was celebrating Lent that for 40 days, she would deny herself. She said, I'm going to deny myself chocolate for 40 days. But Jesus says, right, if you want to follow him, it's not just denying yourself chocolate for 40 days, but you need to deny everything, all of yourself, right, by putting Jesus as the Lord of your life. It's almost as if you were in the driver's seat of the car of your life, but now you step out of the driver's seat and you invite Jesus to, to sit in the driver's seat of your life and to, to follow. You follow what Jesus wants you to do. And as a result, you deny what you want and you do what Jesus wants because he is now the driver's seat of your life. And it's not just 40 days, right? Because actually, what Jesus is saying here is if you want to come after Jesus, he must deny himself daily, right? So the daily here doesn't just, you know, modify the take up your cross, but you deny yourself daily. On a daily basis, every day, day by day, 
You choose not to do things because you now follow Jesus. Now, before I was a Christian, uh, just before I became a Christian, I was, I was at university in Australia as a student. And I used to have some uh, student habits. So I used to sleep really, really late. You can ask my wife when she met me, right? My usual sleeping time was 3 a.m. in the morning. That's like my normal sleeping time. Okay? So after I became a Christian, um, I used to continue to sleep at 3 a.m. I have to go to church early in the morning. Uh, I also used to play tennis competition sometimes on Sunday morning. And then sometimes also our friends who want to play golf, we go to a public golf course on Sunday afternoon. So I would go to church at university at this uh, Focus Fellowship Overseas Christian University student. So I would either end up at church uh, late and really sleepy, right, having, having been to bed at 3 o'clock, or I'll end up at church really late and sticky because I'd be rushing from playing tennis, or I'll come to church late and tired, but still leave early because I had to go and play golf in the afternoon. So the pastor there, Pastor Joshua, sat me down one day and said, you know, Andrew, if you want to be serious about this Christian thing, you're going to have to make some changes in your life. Right? You're going to have to deny yourself some of the things that you've been doing in the past. You know? You're going to have to perhaps sleep a bit earlier. Maybe you can't play tennis on Sunday morning. Or you know, maybe you can't play golf so early on Sunday afternoon. And I learned what it meant then that if you want to follow Christ, come after Christ, then Christ has to be, to be on the driver's seat of your life. Right? He is the one who, in a sense, has to drive and direct your life and you have to make the changes to fit in. Now, all the more, I think, even today, it's even harder to deny yourself than when I became a Christian uh, all those years ago. Right? So I, I've been reading this book uh, quite a really good book called The Plausibility Problem. And there's a quote that I found really helpful in it. And I'll read it to you. It says, Our hearts have been captured uh, by the assumptions of individualism in a world, and far too often a church as well, in which self-expression and self-fulfillment are largely unquestioned values. See, we live in a world where you know, we assume that uh, the qualities of individualism Self-expression and self-fulfillment must be the highest and most noble things that we should be having, right? And we assume all those things. But that makes it very hard to deny ourselves, right? Because we live in a world where it says, you know, just be yourself, enjoy yourself, and fulfill yourself. Those are the highest things that we should be aiming for. But that's completely opposite to what Jesus is saying here, right? He's not saying, just be yourself, enjoy yourself, fulfill yourself. He's saying, deny yourself. You want to follow me? It's not about being yourself, enjoying yourself, or fulfilling yourself. It is denying yourself on a daily basis. And that's what Jesus says if you want to follow me. Now, the idea of denying yourself is actually linked and, ex and expanded and elaborated and developed upon when Jesus goes on to say he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Right? So the two ideas are, are sort of like similar family of ideas. Now, the idea of taking up our cross, we often think of someone carrying the whole, you know, two pieces of the cross together, right? But actually in the ancient world, um, many people feel that actually what they used to do was uh, the centerpiece of the of the cross is actually fixed into the ground already. And, and what you do is you carry the 
the middle beam. doesn't matter whether it's the big cross or the middle beam. What is Jesus talking about here? What does it mean to pick up your cross daily? Well, again, to understand what the words in the Bible are saying, to understand what phrases in the Bible are saying, we often look to the context, right? So the context here is really helpful because I think Jesus is trying to say if you want to take up your cross, it's synonymous to the idea of losing your life. And that's what it means, isn't it? I mean, in, in the ancient world, you see someone walking up the street with this big bar on their shoulder or this big cross on their shoulder. You're looking at a dead man or, or a dead woman walking, right? They don't have long to live in this world. And that's what Jesus is saying. You deny yourself. You want to come after Jesus. You deny yourself. How much do you deny yourself? You deny yourself up to the point of death. That's how much you need to deny yourself if you want to come after Jesus. Up to the point of death. But I think there's another idea which I think we, we, we also miss out on, sometimes I've missed out on it as well, is the idea of shame, right? Because I think the take up your cross is also linked to this idea of being ashamed. You know, the Romans are quite interesting people, right? I mean, why would they make some condemned person walk publicly up and down the street with this big whooping cross on their shoulder? Why don't they just do what we do in Singapore now, just you know, hang people in Changi prison and make an announcement in the newspaper the next day, right? Why do they make this poor fellow, you know, who's stripped half naked, walk up and down the street with this cross on his shoulder? It's to humiliate and to shame the person so that it sends a message to the people, don't do what this person did, right? The cross is a symbol of shame. To carry the cross is a shameful thing. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. When you deny yourself, you deny yourself up to the point of death. But also you'll be willing to bear shame for Jesus, the shame of following a rejected Christ, a suffering Christ, and a crucified Christ on a daily basis. So recently I've been uh, reading books. Uh, I read this, I've been reading this book on... Uh, it's really interesting. You know, If you do read books, it's good to read books on historical uh, Christians. And so, I was reading this book on this guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived during the time of uh, Adolf Hitler, during the Nazi reign. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a church leader at that stage. He was a theologian, he was a pastor, and he was the leader of what was called the Free Church, okay, the Independent Church. Because what Hitler was trying to do when he came to power was that he recognized that the church was a very powerful institution in German society. So what Hitler did was he, he basically you know, undermined the church. He changed the church's constitution. Uh, he made appointments to put all his, uh, you know, his lackeys in key power positions. He said that you know, if you wanted to be part of the church, you had to pledge allegiance to the Nazi party. And so Bonhoeffer stood up against uh, Hitler. But even up to 1933, right? So you imagine the war only started in 1939. So, you know, even in 1933, only 20% of pastors supported him. 
Okay, so 1933, right, many years before the war even started, he was fighting and resisting Hitler, and only 20% of pastors supported Bonhoeffer. So he continued to resist against Hitler, and finally he was executed. In the 9th April 1945, his body was never found. Right? So here was a Christian person who, in a sense, because he recognized he was coming after Jesus, was willing to deny himself daily, to take up his cross daily, even suffer shame, even among other Christians, and was willing ultimately to pay the ultimate cross price and to die for his faith in Jesus. But he's not the only Christian who comes after Jesus in this way, isn't it? So again, I'd like to highly recommend to you this book, Operation World, which is like a prayer book for every country in the whole world. And recently, I've been reading about the country of Iraq. And if you read about Iraq, uh, you know, in God's divine grace and providence, there are many, many Iraqis who are becoming Christians. Up to a million people they feel are Christians in Iraq. In the same way, in Iran, uh, many people are coming to Christ. But if you read Operation World, as Christians, especially people who have converted out of um, majority religion there, they suffer intense persecution. They have to deny themselves you know, what they want in terms of jobs, in terms of family, relationships, marriage, money, even death. They, they, they take up the cross in a very real, real way. But that's what it means to follow Jesus, to come after Jesus. Now, we might ask ourselves, it's madness, right? Who would want to, to follow Bonhoeffer? Who would want to follow these Iraqi and Iranian Christians? It's foolish, right? But that's what Jesus then addresses in verse 24. In verse 24, 25, 26, I think if you look in the ESV Bible, each of those verses begins with the word for or because. I think in the NIV, it skips it out, but it's there in the original. And that's really important because verse 24, verse 25, and verse 26 are all linked together into a very tight argument, right? a very tight argument, which explains why it makes so much sense. It's so logical that you, you know, that you should deny yourself and take up your cross daily to follow Jesus. So what's the first argument? In verse 24, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever wants to lose his life for me, for Jesus, will save it. And so what we see here in verse 24 is why should you take up your cross? Why take up your cross and die for Jesus? Because if you are willing to save your life now, you will lose it in the future. But if you lose your life for me now, if you take up your cross for me now, then in the future you will save life, right? So this comes from the Dig Deeper into Gospels book. So what Jesus is saying really is, you should take up your cross and deny yourself and follow Jesus. Why? For, for, right? It is better to lose life, earthly life, in order to save eternal life. 
if you save your life, your earthly life, and you lose your eternal life, then it doesn't make sense because this life is finite. Our earthly life is short. There's a time limit. But heavenly life is eternal. But it's not just eternal. It is wonderful compared to this life. It is worth it. It is logical to take up your cross and to lose your life because you will save eternal life. Now verse 25 goes on to say, for, right, for in verse 25, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose his very self? Now the words in verse 25 are all business words, accounting words, profit and loss words. Okay, so what good is it if you look at ESV, it's what profit is it, right? So what profit is it for a man to gain the whole world but yet lose or forfeit in an in a, in accounting sense, your very self? Now this idea of very self is uh, almost the idea of the core of who you are, almost like the idea of soul, your soul, right? Your very self, which exists into eternity. Right? Your physical body may go away, but your soul or your very self exists into eternity. And so what Jesus is saying here, what good is it, what profit is it, if you gain the whole world, but yet lose or forfeit your very self, your very eternal soul, which lasts into eternity. Now, what Jesus is saying is this, isn't it? So from a profit and loss basis, right? is it better to save this short, time-bound earthly life, even if you get the whole world and all its material things in it, but yet lose your eternal life and your very soul, the very core of who you are? No, isn't it? Uh, the expected answer is no. Okay, it is lost. If you save this finite life, including this world, but you lose eternal life, and the very core of who you are for eternity. But rather, what Jesus is saying here is, better that you take up your cross. Better that you take up your cross and lose this finite life and this world and save eternal life and your very soul for eternity. Because at the end of the day, this finite life in this world cannot compare to the core of who you are, your very self, your soul, living in eternity in heaven. Now Jesus then goes on and he says, <clears throat> for, okay, so there's an argument here, right? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. For, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose and forfeit his very self? For, because, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, here we see the flow of the argument, right? Why should we take up our cross? Why should we bear death? Why should we deny ourselves? Why should we be willing to take up the shame of taking up the cross? Why? Well, because if we are ashamed of Jesus and we walk away from Him, we deny Him, we deny His words, 
then Jesus, when He comes in the future, in His glory, He will reject us who are ashamed of Him. Now, this is so powerful, isn't it? Because we live in a world today where many people call themselves Christians. We may say that we are Christians and we are not ashamed of Christ, but we might be ashamed of His words. So I remember going to a dinner party many years ago. There were some Christians there. And someone at the dining table, uh, I think it was like Chinese New Year dinner, said something like, you know, as long as you're a sincere believer, then you will go to heaven, right? Because, you know, all religions are the same. And then uh, this uncle looked at all of us. And my Christian friend said, yes, you are right. I was shocked. You know, I, I looked at my Christian friend, I'm like, what are you saying, right? The Bible doesn't say that all religions are the same, and the Bible doesn't say that as long as you believe in God sincerely, we all go to heaven. But what had happened was, this Christian friend obviously felt the pressure from this uncle, right? Some uncles are quite stressful, right? You meet them. And, and obviously, you know, was ashamed of Jesus' words. And it's very easy in the world that we live in today to be ashamed of Jesus' words. We may be ashamed of the things that Jesus says about marriage. We may be ashamed of the things that Jesus says about the, the universal sin of all mankind, that we are all sinners, that we're not good people. We may be ashamed of what Jesus says about our identity. We may be ashamed of what Jesus says that there is only one way to God, Jesus Christ. We may be ashamed when we say that Jesus is the only Lord. But Jesus says, look, if you're ashamed of me now, then I will be ashamed of you when I come. And I want you to notice the emphasis here in the words of Jesus. The repeated theme of this verse here is the idea of glory, right? Glory. It's like, does it make sense? Okay, again, remember, it's a tight argument, right? Verse 24, 25, 26. Does it make sense for you to be ashamed of Jesus today before that aggressive uncle and Jesus being ashamed of you in the future when he comes in his glory? No, right? It cannot be. It doesn't make sense. Why would we lose this glorious future, eternal heaven that we have, to be ashamed of Jesus now before mere human beings. It just doesn't make sense, right? And that's why, in the book that I was uh, reading, right, it made this good point. It said, what we are asked to give up today is nothing compared with what we are to invited to receive in the future, right? If we understand the glory of Jesus when He comes, the glory of His Father when He comes, the glory of His heavenly angels when He comes, then we'll be willing to put up with shame and deny our own wants and needs and dreams. We will be willing to take up our cross even to death because we know that this future, this glorious future is so much greater than what this world can offer us. So, in conclusion, I talk to some old people sometimes, and 
And I guess it's, once you get older, you know, you start thinking about death, right? And there's this thing about the art of dying well. You know, we all want to die well. You know, we all want to die peacefully, not in great pain. We all want to die at home among our loved ones. We don't want to die, I guess, lonely. I guess we want to die as well, safe in the knowledge that our loved ones will be provided for, you know, that they, they won't uh, suffer. But actually, when you look at this passage, uh, the art of dying well is actually to know that your future is secure, isn't it? That is the art of dying well. So when you die, to know that actually what is, what is waiting for you is, is actually the glory of Jesus, eternal life, your very core of your being in eternity and glorious heaven. That is the art of dying well. And so I would like to leave you with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer on his tombstone. It says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 1945, hanged by order of Adolf Hitler. And uh, his words were, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. And that's really deep and profound, right? It is the end. Yes, the end. The end of his earthly life. But for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's the beginning of life. Eternal life. The glorious life that is going to come in eternity in heaven. So it is worthwhile that as we come after Jesus to deny ourselves daily, to take up our cross daily, and to follow Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to ask you to help us to understand and really grasp the, the depths of what Jesus is saying here. That He is the Christ, but He is the Christ who had to walk the road of suffering, the road of rejection, and the road of death by crucifixion. And dear Father, even today, as we follow Him, we will also follow on that road of suffering and rejection, and even up to the point of death for some people. But Jesus tells us if we want to come after Him, then there is a cost. We need to deny ourselves daily. We need to take up our cross daily. But it is worth it, dear Father. It is worth it to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. For Jesus promises uh, that it is so much worthwhile to do so because we will save our life, save our eternal life. Uh, we would save the very core of our being, our very self, our soul. And when Jesus comes again, we will be welcomed into His glorious family, His glorious home, uh, together with you and your glory and the heavenly angels. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, thank you, Pastor Andrew, for the sermon. We're now moving to the time of discussion and reflection. Uh, so those of you who are on Zoom, uh, we're moving you into our breakout groups to discuss the sermon. Uh, for those who are present, uh, just feel free to turn to the persons uh, next to you or behind you to discuss the sermon. We'll be uh, looking at this just this one question today. How are you denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus? So we'll return in about five minutes.
Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.